The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're looking this morning in um, Colossians chapter 4, uh, kind of getting to the very end of the book of Colossians. Uh, message title this morning is Living with the Outsiders. Are you an insider or are you an outsider? We'll find out. Um, let's read. Uh, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So let's begin by reading. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. With thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, We're getting uh, to the uh, end of Paul's letter, and in fact, the next section after this, Paul's going to go through a long list of greetings. Uh, So this is kind of the last word in terms of kind of the content of the book. And uh, he uh, he really turns his focus more towards um, how we interact with those outside the church. So he talks here about, uh, living uh, wisely toward outsiders, which means if there's outsiders, there's insiders. And so who's the insiders and who's the outsiders? Well, he's talking here of those inside the church, and most, most of the focus of his book has really been on, uh, on the people who were the members, the, the fellowship of the church in Colossae. And so he's been encouraging them to, uh, first of all, uh, be the body of Christ together, to not be pulled outside of the church by these false teachers that were trying to trip them up, uh, but also that they would live the new life of Christ, right? that they would put off the old life and really be living the new life of Christ in their relationships with each other as the family of God and also in their homes and with their, their, own, uh, their own families. So he's been focused very much on this, the insiders, those inside the church. But he doesn't want to leave the, the letter there. He wants to end with, with talking about how they live uh, in a world um, with those who are not part of the church, those who are not followers of Christ. And, you know, Paul did not intend for the church to be a fortress or a hideout. Right? Did you know that? The church is not where we come to hide. Right? Sometimes that's how we think about the church, though. We think of, you know, the world's a scary place. It's dangerous. It's full of temptations. And so I'm just going to come hide in the church, and uh, it's very possible to uh, cut ourselves off from the world and just have only friends in the church, only relationships with people who are Christians, um, uh, where, where we really become this fortress, and we just shut the world out, or, or a monastery, right, where we just shut the world out, and, and I'll tell you the truth, that's much easier, right? It would be super easy to just have relationships inside the church, and to just cut ourselves off from people out in the world. Uh, but that's not really uh, what, what, what Paul's picture is of the church. Instead, he really views the church as a showroom. You know what a showroom is? Have, have any of you been to Ikea? Okay, good guy. Ikea, like the difference between Ikea and like 
Big C, this Big C just has shelves of stuff, and you walk in there, and you really have to use your own imagination to know how this stuff could be useful in your life, right? But you go into Ikea, and they have showrooms. They don't have stuff. They have little bedrooms set up and little kitchens set up. If you haven't been, you need to go just to walk through the miles and miles of showrooms of stuff, right? And you get ideas. You think, oh, that's what you do with that, right? That's how that lamp or that table or that desk would look. And all the stuff you have to have on it to make it look really cool, right? It's a showroom. Well, that's really uh, what Paul says the church should be. It should be a showroom that's showing outsiders the wonders and treasures of the gospel, They should see what the truth of the gospel looks like when it's all set up and decorated in your life, right? In our life. And so people can see uh, what Jesus can do in a life, right? So we're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be showing um, the world who Christ is, what the gospel means, and what it can do in your life by how we live, right? So the question we come to as we come to this passage is, how are we to live before outsiders? But at the same time, not go back into the old life. Right? Paul's just spent a lot of time talking about putting off the old self. And the reality is that the old self, the old sinful me, is really comfortable in the world. Like there's no problem for the old me living in the world. Right? Your friends want to go to the bar. The old me says, yeah, let's go to the bar. Right? Your old self, your old friends want to go get in trouble. The old you is like, yeah, let's go get in trouble. Let's have fun. Right? So the challenge for, for us is how do we live uh, before outsiders and not become like them, right? Not end up doing the things that we used to do in our former life when we were outside. How do we live a life that's distinctly different, that is putting on the new life of Christ, but living it uh, in relationship with people in, in the world, right? So Paul realizes there's some, there's some dangers in this. Right? It would be much safer if we just locked ourselves and especially our high school children up in a, in a room uh, where they were not interacting with the world, right? But that's not what we're called to. We're called to live out the new life of Christ, put off the old life, but before the watching world, before these outsiders. So Paul gives us some very practical wisdom and advice on how to do this well. Right? And it's, uh, I think it's super important to notice the first thing he says about living this life towards outsiders is not go out there and try harder, not go out there and really, you can do this. Instead, what he says is this. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. <laughs> That's a good place to start, right? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. All right, this is where we start. Paul knows that we cannot do this alone by our own power or our own determination. Paul does not say, say, hey, you guys can do this. Go out there and just live Christ out in the world. No, he says, he says, pray, right? Pray, continue steadfastly in prayer. And this idea of continue steadfastly really has the idea of being devoted or persistent in prayer. And it really pictures a certain kind of desperation in prayer. Right, uh, This kind of devoted, persistent prayer is only possible when we realize how helpless we are to put off the old self and put on the new by ourselves in our own strength. Right, uh, We become 
devoted and persistent in prayer only when we understand that we we really are desperately in need of God's help, right? Every moment of our lives. That's when we will start really praying. Uh, the reality is most of us don't pray with this, this kind of urgency and this kind of persistence. Uh, most of us kind of have to force ourselves to pray, right? And like we know we're supposed to pray. We know we're supposed to get up early in the morning. And we, you know, we know this is something that's supposed to be part of the Christian life. Uh, but it's hard for us because we feel we're in, we're, we're in control of everything, right? We're confident that we got everything under control and that we've got this. Um, and so uh, we just think, you know, I just need to try harder, be more determined, be more disciplined, and I can, I can put on this new life. I can resist sin. I can be a witness in the world, right? Uh, but what we need is not more self-discipline. What we need is to be more desperate, more desperate in need of God's help. So here, here's a question, just to put it to the test, right? This morning, how many of you, before you sat down to your bowl of cereal or your cow dome or your egg, bowed in prayer and said, God, please help me eat this breakfast. I just don't think I can do it. I need your help. Anybody? Anybody? No. Now, you may have prayed for breakfast, but you prayed something like, God bless this food because, I don't know, it's what we're supposed to do. Boom, and you dig in, and nobody had to worry that I'm not going to be able to eat my breakfast, like that somehow I'm going to miss my mouth, or I'm just not going to be able to get those eggs in the right spot, you know, and so we need prayer. So did we pray for God to help us eat our breakfast? No, of course not. Uh, did you pray that God would help you make it to church safely? Well, now some of you may have prayed that, right? Some of you may, may not be super confident in your own driving skills, or maybe you're just smart enough to not be confident in other people's driving skills. And so maybe you think, well, maybe I should pray for this, right? Because I don't just control everything. Um, but maybe you're a very confident driver and, and you thought, well, I don't need to pray. I, I got this, right? I I'm in control, right? But let's say, let's say you go to the doctor. You've been having headaches and you go to the doctor and they do some scans and they do some tests. And they, the doctor says, look, you have a very serious brain tumor, and we've got to go in, and it's going to be very risky and very dangerous. But we can take the brain tumor out. But, you know, it's right in the middle of your brain. So this is a serious kind of surgery. Would you pray? You'd pray, right? Because all of a sudden now you're not in control of anything. Right? There's nothing you can do about it. And you're putting your whole life and your brain in the hands of this doctor Yes, you would pray. You would ask other people to pray. You would ask everybody you know to pray. Why? What's the difference? Well, all of a sudden now, you're not in control. Right? You know that it's not in your hands. It's not in your power. You can't do it. Right? And so all of a sudden you become, you, you realize, I need God's help. Right? I don't I mean, I, I hope this doctor graduated from a good school, but I'm not sure. But I'm not trusting in the doctor. My hope, what I need, is for God to intervene. I need God's help, right? And, and see, we, we, we will only pray prayers of continuing steadfastly, of this kind of persistent, devoted, urgent prayer, when we uh, become aware really how impossible for it is to live life successfully, um, to, to, to put on the new life, unless we have God's help. 
right? That the temptations and the distractions and the things that bombard us every day, uh, we will never gain victory over those things if it's up to me, right? It has to be something we do by the power of the Holy Spirit with his help. And it's when we come to this place of, of uh, helplessness and dependence on God that we will have this kind of prayer life, uh, that uh, that we know I'm not in control, but he is. That I know I can't do this on my own, but he has given me the power in the Holy Spirit to put on the new life of Christ. Right, so that's the first part. It's this idea of, of earnest, urgent dependence, uh, desperate need for Christ. But he also says that we're to pray uh, being watchful. And the idea of watchful is really the, the word of somebody who's on guard, on guard duty at, at a and at the city gate, right? And they're watching. They're on lookout. They're in the in the lookout tower, watching for threats, right? And so, as we pray, we should be on the lookout for threats that we see. And uh, when the watchman sees, you know, an enemy or some something that they feel is a threat, they sound the alarm. Well, we should be on the lookout for these threats. And of course, the the alarm we sound is not to the city or to the soldiers, but it's to God, right? That's what he says. We we pray to God. Uh, as we see the, the dangers around us. So what are the dangers we're looking for? Well, of course, we should pray for everything. And there's many things, uh, lots of things in life we should be praying for. But I think here, Paul, in the context of this whole idea of putting off the old and putting on the new, uh, Paul is, is, is saying you need, to, uh, you need to engage with the world, but you need, be, need to be watchful, realizing that when you go out and you live Toward outsiders, you live in the world. There's a lot of things that are very tempting for us, right? This is the world we were saved out from, and there's a lot of things about it we still are drawn to, right? So those are the things we need to be on the lookout for. These temptations to pull us back into our old life. Um, he he said in Colossians three, uh, five, seven, and eight. He says, "Put to death what is earthly in you: sexual immorality." impurity, passion, evil desire, right? Those are the things that are so tempting for us. Um, And he says, in these you two once walked when you were living in them. So we are comfortable with these things and we are attracted to these things. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Um, In you know, when we, when we turn to Christ and we leave that outside community and we join this new inside community, our old friends sometimes feel like we've abandoned them, right? That we don't like them anymore. And they, they're, they're wanting us to come back, right? And they call, they call us, hey, you don't hang out with us like you used to. Why don't you come or go into, you know, a place that you know you shouldn't go, right? It's tempting, and so Paul says we, we, we're on the watch out for these things. We're on, on our guard. And so we're praying that, that we will not be tempted by those things, that God will help us put off the old. But at the same time that God would help us put on the new, right? To put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another uh, and loving each other, right? Um, we don't do these things... By determination, we, we do these things through prayer, through watchful, persistent prayer. And finally, Paul says, uh, we do this also with thanksgiving. Um, 
it's easy sometimes for us to pray uh, our, our requests. Our, you know, we know what we need. Sometimes we've got our long list of things we want God to do for us. But it's interesting, uh, especially in this book, in, in the book of Colossians, but throughout most of Paul's prayers, he mixes petition with thanksgiving all the time. Right? He's asking God for things, but he's also giving thanks. Um, so the question is, you know, here's, here's where prayer gets hard for us. Right? And I know that prayer is hard. Uh, I know prayer is hard, first of all, because I, I don't really think I need God's help. But also, prayer is hard because sometimes I know I need God's help, but I feel like he's not very helpful. Right? You pray, and you ask God for help, and it seems like he doesn't answer. Or he certainly doesn't answer as quickly or in the way we think he should. Right? Well, the great correction, the great the great way to keep this all in balance is to make sure we are mixing thankfulness with our petitions. Right? And here's how this works. What, what are we thankful for? Well, you may come to prayer time in the morning and you may have your list and you may look down your list and you may say, well, yesterday God did not answer one single one of my prayers. So I have nothing to be thankful for. Right? And if you, if you have that perspective, prayer is going to be very discouraging for you. Because you're going to say, well, why bother? I prayed, and yesterday God didn't answer one of my prayers, so I'm just going to give up. Right? But that's not really what Paul means when he says be thankful. Now, hopefully you prayed, and yesterday you did see God do something. Uh, but, but I'll tell you what. We always have something to be thankful for in Christ. Right? And in fact, Paul has spent a lot of time in this letter encouraging the Colossians with the the, the things they should really be thankful for more than anything. So, you know, maybe your car broke down yesterday and things your day didn't go quite the way you wanted and you feel like God failed you. But when we come back to what Jesus did for us on the cross, we always have tons to be thankful for, right? What has God done for you and what has He promised? Well, Colossians 2 11, Paul reminds us what, what Christ has done for us. He says, In Him, in Christ, uh, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh through the circumcision or the, the, the death of Christ, uh, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the power, powerful working of God. Right? He says, look, you were... You were, you were dead. Your old person was under the curse of sin and death. And Jesus took the old you and he crucified you with him to the, on the cross. You died with Christ. You were crucified with him when he died. Your old person died with him. And you have then been raised through him and through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You've been raised with him to new life. You no longer are the same person you were. That old person is dead and gone. You are now a new person in Christ. Do you have something to be thankful for? Well, if you remember who that old person was, you should be thankful he's dead, right? Uh, if you're not so sure about that, just talk to your mom or your wife or your husband. Like, like what you were before. Was that a good person? No. Uh, is it good? Do you have something to be thankful for that Christ has made you new? He has made you a new person. Absolutely, right? 
Uh, is God working in your life? That's a pretty big work. Okay, killing you off, raising you up, giving you new life. Is God at work in your life? Yeah, He's doing big things in your life, transforming you and changing you. Not only that, He has forgiven us all of our trespasses canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross with Jesus. Right? Um, maybe you feel like you don't have much to be thankful for. Maybe life is hard for you. And I don't want to belittle or diminish the hard things in life. Right? Sometimes life is very hard. But do you always have something to be thankful for in Christ? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And we start seeing our life through the power of the cross, and through what Jesus has accomplished for us. Believe me, we will always have something to be thankful for. And what this does is this gives us uh, faith and confidence that, look, if God, if God sent His own Son to die for me, if He took my old life and nailed it with Christ to the cross, and He took my sins and my debts and He nailed it to the cross with Christ. And He raised me up to new life and He is making me a new creature. He's, he's giving me new life in Christ. Then can I be confident that God's going to answer my prayers? Yes. Now, is He always going to do it exactly like, like you think? Well, thankfully, no. Right? Because actually God's smarter than you. Right? And sometimes he's going to answer your prayers differently because he knows better. But God is always working. He is always answering. Right? Um, but we get that perspective when we are thankful. We lose that perspective when we forget to be thankful. All right? So prayer begins with our desperate need for God. But we really persist and persevere in prayer when we're reminded of what he's done for us in Christ. And we hold on with unwavering faith to his gospel promises. Right? So it starts there. Now that may seem like it doesn't have anything really to do with the outside world, but it really does because it's how we, we really prepare ourselves to go out and engage the world, to live before the world and not get swallowed up, not get sucked back into the temptations and sin that, that we know are out there for us. right? But Paul also uh, asked for prayer, not only for their life as they put on this new life in Christ, but also that God would work, right? that God would be at work in, the, in their life and in, specifically in Paul's life. He says in verse 3, at the same time, so while you're praying, don't forget to pray for me, that God may uh, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Um, our prayers are not only defensive. And I would say in verse 2, our prayers to be watchful, to be persistent in prayer, those are really defensive prayers. So let me just explain. Like defense kind of is a sports picture, right? In sports, most sports you have both an offense and a defense. And the purpose of the defense is to protect the goal, right? You're trying to prevent the other team from scoring, Right, so you're defensive. You're trying to block. You're trying to keep them away. Right, and that's defense. And so uh, the first prayer that, that Paul talked about is really defensive prayer. We're trying to prevent spiritual attack. Right, trying to prevent the enemy winning by tempting us to sin. Uh, but everybody knows if you, if you know anything with sports, 
Uh, a team can never win if they only have a defense. Right? At some point you have to go out there and you actually have to try to score. You have to actually try to put the ball in their goal. And that's what we call offense, right? We need to sometimes go on the attack. We need to have a plan to be offensive. Uh, and so that's what he's talking about here. Uh, prayer that is, is, uh, that's going to um, not just protect us, but it's going to get out there and proclaim Christ and, and turn those outsiders into insiders. Right? We, we don't need to be not threatened by them, but the goal is to engage them in a way that we bring them to Christ, that we draw them to the gospel. Right? So Paul says we need to be praying for that as well. And he, he puts it in terms of an open door. We need to pray for open doors. And uh, this is a picture first of, of um, uh, he says, uh, let's, put it, let's back up a little bit. Open door uh, for us, uh, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Open door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Um, it's an open door to proclaim the gospel. Right? The word here is the, the word of the gospel that he's been talking about through the book, through the letter, uh, to share Christ, the mystery of the gospel. Um, it's, it's a mystery because it's uh, been hidden in the Old Testament era, but now made visible that Jesus is the way of salvation. Um, so he says you need to pray that we would have an open door to the word, right? Um, uh, and this open door is really the opportunities we have to share the gospel message. Now, what I think is fascinating here is that uh, Paul prays uh, that God would open doors. Uh, Do do you get the importance of that little statement? That God would open doors. I think far too often when we think about evangelism, we think about taking the gospel to the world, we think about proclaiming Christ. What we think of is uh, the opportunities that I can create, right? The ways I can engage the world. Uh, the techniques and methods I can come up with to be sharing the gospel. Now, I, I think there are value in our strategy and our, our methods, our ideas. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a track or having uh, a story that you tell or a testimony or some word that you say to start a spiritual conversation. I think that's great. But the danger is that we think this comes, it's, it's all about me. Like, I'm the one who's going to kick the door in, right? Have you ever seen this a kind of a funny scene in a lot of movies, right, where the police rushes up the, the door and the bad guy's in the room, you know, and the police guy's trying to bash the door in, and his buddy comes up and just turns the doorknob and opens the door, right? And it's kind of funny, right? Uh, I think that's kind of how we are sometimes. Like, we're, we're bashing ourselves up against the door, right? We're going to we're going to save people. We're going to tell them the gospel. We're going to show them who Jesus is. And we're laboring to crash in the door. And God's saying, you know, if you would just ask, <laughs> I could open the door for you. right? And the, and the reality is, uh, can we really open the door? Now, of course, we can, we can share Jesus with anybody, right? Nothing worse than, you know, somebody getting stuck next to a preacher on an airplane. <laughs> Captive audience, right? Can't escape. There's no parachutes, right? Sure, there are opportunities when, you know, you can share the gospel. But the open door that he's talking about isn't just the opportunity to share. It's really 
opening the door to people's hearts, right? And and here's the reality: we could never open the door to a person's heart. Right? Uh, now, does that mean we shouldn't share unless people are, are you know obviously open? Well, no. We should share. We should be witnesses. We should proclaim the gospel. But but the truth is. Um, it's not a matter of our techniques or our methods or our eloquence or how well we can defend the gospel or how well we can explain it. Right? Ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can open the door to a person's heart and mind. Right? And so I think that's really what Paul is saying here. He says we need to be praying that God would open people's hearts and minds so that when we share the message, it's warmly welcomed because they've opened the door. Right? You know, I've, I've, I've had the chance to share Christ with many Thai people. And it's hard. And it's not hard because they don't want to talk about religious things. They like to talk about religious things. And I found that many of them are very excited to learn about Jesus. And they want to know what the Bible teaches. And they want to know who Jesus is. And they, they want to know all about Jesus. But then as you go through this conversation and you're sharing Christ with them, what I find often happens is they will say things like, yeah, that's just like Buddhism. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what did I say wrong? Like, like, am I reading the Bible upside down? How in the world do you think that what I just shared with you is anything like Buddhism? Like, I'm saying it's the opposite of Buddhism. And I'll explain some more, right? And I'll get more animated. I'll get more fired up. And they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, that's just like Buddhism. <laughs> no, no, right? What's the problem? Is the problem in my explanation? Is it because I don't have good enough illustrations? Is it because I don't speak Thai well enough? Well, probably that, for sure. But, but really, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that I can't open the door to their heart. I cannot give them understanding. Right? Only the Holy Spirit can turn the light on and give them the ability to grasp and comprehend the truth. And that's not, that's not only Thai people, but every person, every lost person, right? anybody who's outside of Christ, We'll never come to know the gospel based on our logic, our explanation, right? our technique, or our method. Ultimately, only the Holy Spirit can do it. Um, and so that's why Paul says uh, that I may make it clear. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the best translation. The word there literally is that I will reveal it. Right? The, that translation, that I will make it clear, almost makes it sound like if I, if I can just explain it clearly enough, then, then they'll get it. But actually the word there is reveal. That I may reveal to them the truth. And here's the reality. Revelation comes not from us, but from God. Right? Only God can reveal himself. Only God can reveal the truth of Christ to them through the Holy Spirit. So, so uh, just, just a, a, a question to reflect on, right? Are we trusting in our ability to convince people that the gospel is true? Right? Is it all about our techniques and our methods and our examples and our illustrations? How well we can answer their questions? Or are we really trusting in the Holy Spirit to open their hearts and minds? Well, how do you know? Well, I think the way you know is this. If you're really trusting in the Holy Spirit, then your plan of evangelism will be deeply anchored and rooted in prayer. 
Um, you will be praying for God to open the door to his word and the mystery of Christ. Uh, I think we do a lot of evangelism. I I think people are out there sharing Christ. But are we praying? (laughs) Are we really praying for God to open the door? Maybe one of the reasons we see so few people come to Christ is because we pray so little. Because we really are not depending on God to work. We, we think it's us. Right? I think the other, result, the other sign is that because we do think it's us, we just don't share. Because <laughs> right? we did that once and it didn't work. I did try to share the gospel and they didn't get saved, so I'm just not going to do that anymore. Right? They just laughed at me. Or they asked me really hard questions and I couldn't answer their questions and I just looked stupid. So clearly I'm not educated enough. I'm not called. I'm not an evangelist. I just won't share. Uh, Both those things are errors. We are called to proclaim Christ. We are called to share our testimony. We are called to be witnesses to the power of the resurrection. But the power of it is in God opening the door. And the only way we unleash, unleash that power is through prayer. Uh, we need to be a people, Paul says, who are praying the word forward. Right? Who are praying the gospel into people's lives. We need to proclaim it. But before we're proclaiming it, we need to be praying the Holy Spirit to open those doors. All right, third thing. Paul says we need to be praying for our own lives. We need to be praying for God to work in the lives of the lost. But Lastly, he says we need to we need to live outside. <laughs> okay, yeah, we can't just wall up in the church. We can't just hide out in the fortress. He says, no, go outside. You guys need to go outside and play. Like the teacher at school who's had the kids way too long. It's time for recess. You guys get outside and play. He says you need, you need to get outside the church walls and play. You need to get out there and live with outsiders. Right. So he says in verse uh, verse five. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Uh, you could abbreviate that as, as walking wise, walk wise, right? Uh, and the, the word walk in Scripture always has the idea of living our conduct, how we live, right? Walk uh, in a way that is wise toward outsiders. And wisdom uh, always has the idea in Scripture of knowing what is the right thing to do. Right? So he's saying, uh, walk in a way that's, that's right, that's doing the right thing towards outsiders. And I think in, in light of everything Paul's talking about here, what's right is living in such a way that we're casting a good light on the gospel. Right? We are making the gospel compelling by the example of our lifestyle. Remember, we're supposed to be a showroom, not a fortress, right? So they should see the gospel in our life. Um, uh, and he says we do that by, by redeeming the time or buying back the time. Uh, one commentator says the meaning, uh, likely meaning here is uh, to gain or reclaim the time which would otherwise be lost or slip away, right? Right? Uh, the truth is that God gives many opportunities, uh, but those windows of opportunity are brief and short. And if you don't jump on them, if you're not 
making good use of those that time, it slips away. Uh, and that can be, you know, moments and instances where we can live or share Christ or be a, a witness. But it, it's also our life, right? Our life is short. And, and we don't have many opportunities. Uh, today is going to end, and that's going to be one day less you had to make a difference. Right? This week is going to be gone, and then it's one less week you have to make a difference. It's already, believe it or not, 2021. Can you believe that? Oh, wait. Oh, it's 2023. Ah. Right? Praise God, it's not COVID era anymore. We finally got through that. Uh, no, it's 2023. And pretty soon it's going to be 2024 and 2025 and 2030 and 2050. And it's over. And, and Paul says, redeem the time. Make the use of it. Don't waste it. Reclaim it for eternal purposes. Do not waste the life God's given you. And he says we need to do that by living uh, and, and showing the gospel through our life. F.F. Bruce writes, It remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. Okay, the reputation of the gospel is bound up in your life. Right? He says people who don't read the Bible, uh, who don't listen to the preaching of the word, can see uh, the lives of those who do read the Bible and hear the message. And, will, and they will form their judgment accordingly. Right? So, so believe it or not, there's a gospel according to Tim, a gospel according to Phil, a gospel according to you, right? And it's the way you live, right? Do people see Christ, especially the outsiders, do they see Christ in the way you live? Now, there's two ways we can go wrong in this, right? Uh, one is to think that evangelism is only a matter of proclaiming the message. And that's what Paul's really speaking against here. It's like, hey, you can go ahead and proclaim the message, but if your life uh, does not represent what you're saying, they're not going to believe anything you say, right? Or they're going to be convinced that it doesn't work. It's like, well, you say that the gospel changes lives, but I see how you live and you haven't changed. Why would I believe it, right? Uh, but we can go to the other extreme where we think that it's only a matter of being a witness by how we live. It's like, well, I don't need to tell people about Jesus. I just, I'll just show Jesus through my life, right? Well, both are off, right? Both are off. We need both. We need to live the gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to be diligent and persistent at both. Um, so it really uh, captures what Jesus said in, in, in the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount of Matthew 5. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, so, so we need to live wisely. But Paul says also we need to speak carefully or speak grace. Right? Speak grace. He says, he says uh, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, what are grace words? What is what is speech that is full of grace? Well, it can mean the idea of being attractive, beautiful, and winsome. Right. So our, our speech shouldn't be crude or harsh or um, you know aggressive. It should be gentle and kind. 
But, but certainly in, in the Gospels, in, in the Bible, the idea of grace speech would mean it's also full of kindness and compassion and patience and humility, right? Uh, it's interesting, when you look at the, the list of the put off the old and put on the new, how much of it has to do with our speech, right? Listen, look, let me read the, the old life we're to put off. How many of these have to do with words, right? But now you must put them all away, anger, Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie, he says to one another. Right? A lot of the old life is comes out in our words. And notice also how much of our new life uh, also has to do with words. Right? Um, put on then as God's chosen, holy, and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness. Okay. Are our words kind? Um, humility. Right? A lot of humility is about our words and how we say and what we say. Meekness. Right? Patience, right? Um, a lot of the battle for us is our mouth. It's our words. That's why we need to pray, right? Put on grace speech. Right? Our, our, our conversation with the world should be full of humility and kindness and compassion, right? Um, but he says also that our, our, our speech should be salty, should be seasoned with salt. Now, in English, salty language usually means you curse a lot. That's not actually what Paul is saying here. Okay, uh, the, the, the image has changed a lot from Bible times. Um, what does salt do? Well, salt makes things flavorful. Right? Nothing worse than like just a plain bowl of rice soup that has nothing in it but water and rice. Ugh. Right? No flavor, no spice, no salt, no, no fish sauce. Like nothing to give it flavor. Not, not very tasty. Right? You put salt in it to make it flavorful uh, so that you want to interact with it. You want to eat it. Well, speech that's salty is speech that's got flavor. It's interesting. It's attractive. It's something that people are drawn to. And I think, I think what Paul is saying here is we need to be able to engage with people in real-life conversation that has flavor to them. We need to engage with people who live in the world, right, as we live toward outsiders. Uh, when I was at Denver Seminary, I had this one professor there who uh, was a great professor, good teacher, and on, on the weekends, you'd see him on Friday going to his car with, a, I mean, a stack of books like this. He'd be taking the stack of books out to his car, and uh, he would read books all weekend. And on Monday mornings, he would get up in class. He goes, well, I suppose all of you guys were just watching football games. He didn't make fun of us for watching football and for wasting our time on sports, you know. And, um, and, that sounds all, and that's great and all well and good. If, if your whole life, all you ever do is talk to seminary students, right? But I'm telling you, this guy uh, could not have a conversation with a real person. I mean, meaning not a seminary student, right? If, if the, the range of your topics of conversation are limited to discussions about the hypostatic, hypostatic union or superlapsarianism, um, there's a lot of unsafe people who are just going to go, you don't even speak my language, right? Uh, do you speak English? You have no idea what you're talking about. And see that Paul says, look, it's so easy to get so in your inside world that, and so cut off from the outside world that when you talk to outsiders, they think you're speaking a different language. 
And they want to talk to you about things like the weather or football or food. Like here in Thailand, you've got to be able to talk about food. If you can't talk about like Namprik and, uh, you know, you'll be lost, right? They won't know what to talk to you about. Um, you need to know how to engage people with the things that, are, that, that they, they care about, right? So that's what he means. Be able to be at least culturally relevant enough that you can talk to people. Um, I, realize, I realize this is something I need to work on when I talk to my grandchildren. And they start naming off all these bands and music and songs. I'm like, is this, is this music? Are, are these, like, what are you talking about? Who are these people, right? It means I'm out of touch, right? So Paul says, no, be able to engage people in real-life conversations, right? Meet them where they are. And lastly, as you do that, as you live this winsome life, as you care about people, as you engage with them, as as you live this very different kind of life before them, the hope is that someday people would say to you, you know, I like you, but you're weird. (laughs) Like, what's wrong with you, right? That's what we want. That's the goal, is for people to say, what's wrong with you? Why are you so different? Why are you not like everybody else? And then... He says, be able to give an answer. Well, I'm different because Jesus has radically changed my life. Right? He has killed the old me that was under the, the slavery and domination of sin. And now I'm a new person in Christ. Not because of anything I did, but because Christ is at work in me. And God wants to do that in your life too. He wants to give you new life. Right? Um, that's how we live with the world. Uh, we live in a, you know, we live in a world where we can get caught in a lot of bubbles. Um, you know, here we can get in the the bubble of our our people group, right? People who speak our language, who come from our country, who get our culture, right? We can get caught in the religious bubble. People who are Christians, right? people who are missionaries. People who get our life, right? And it's super tempting to just stay in those bubbles because it's safe. It's easy, right? But that is not the life God calls us to, right? We are to be salt and light. And it is sometimes super uncomfortable to get out there with our broken tie, uh, our limited language, uh, our awkwardness. But Paul says you need to live towards outsiders to be salt and light so that they may see your good works and glorify the fathers in heaven so that they uh, will know the hope to which you have been called and so that we can share with uh, the lost people around us the good news of Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.